0: If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first eight verses, Lord willing, this evening as we continue our series on the book of Romans on Sunday evenings. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of His Word, Romans 4 And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." Again, there is no question so important to ask and no answer that is so important to be found than that which is revealed here in answer to the question, how can a man, woman, or child be right with God? Since we are sinners justly deserving His displeasure, can you think of any question that is greater or more important than that one? Any answer uh, that we would hear from God more important than the answer to the question, How can we be right with God? Now, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with that all the way through thus far in the book of Romans by demonstrating to us the sinfulness, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, that all are uh, under the wrath of God and His condemnation, uh, but that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. So He has dealt with sin and guilt and wrath But also we saw great words such as redemption and propitiation and blood. And I would argue that those texts that we preached, there is nothing more important that can be preached than those that we have preached on Sunday evenings regarding the propitiatory sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Again, why is this important? Well, it's obvious but should be stated. It is the only way to be justified before God. Only God can provide the way for us to be accepted so that there is no boasting on our part And all goes to the glory of God as he concluded at the end of chapter 3. Now, as we turn to chapter 4, Paul wants to demonstrate that justification has always been by faith. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3 verse 21 he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament not only predicts Christ, Christ has always been for sinners the only way of salvation, redemption, of justification. He remains the only way. There is no boasting for anyone ever in any period of redemptive history. There is one covenant of grace with different administrations but one plan of salvation throughout In Romans 11, for example, there is one tree, not two trees, not two plans with two peoples of God, but one plan, one people, one tree. If you are alert to what I'm saying, then you are hearing your pastor saying that I'm holding to covenant theology and not dispensationalism. Now I need to be careful here because certainly not all dispensationalists, perhaps even now none of them. Would hold to the well, none, uh, very few, would hold to the idea that there was a different plan of salvation, a different way of being justified. But they persist in holding to these two views: one people of God, the Jews; another people of God, the church, which I do not think is biblical. Now, Paul begins by pointing out two Old Testament figures, Abraham and David. Why? Because of their importance in the Old Testament narrative and to the Jewish community. After all, Abraham was viewed by the Jews as a proto-lawkeeper, and so when they wanted to point to someone who was a lawkeeper before the law was given, it was Abraham. By pointing to Abraham and to David, of course, the one through whom the Messiah was to come, the Apostle Paul is really dealing a death blow to the idea of justification by works. Why should we care? Well? We should care, first of all, because God has put it here in His Word. We should care because it helps us to understand the Old Testament. But we should also care because it makes the whole matter more clear that there is one way of justification before God, only one way of acceptance. This has always been the case, and it always will. So, were Abraham and David justified differently than you or I? Let's begin with Abraham in these first five verses. Abraham, viewed as a proto-lawkeeper, as I have said, Paul attacks the heart of the Judaizing claim, and he begins in verse 1 by asking the question, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now there's a question here, where does the comma belong? Abraham according to the flesh, meaning natural descent from Abraham, Or does it go with the verb, has found? Then the idea would be this. Did Abraham attain justification by means of the flesh, by means of his own salvation, by means of his own self-reliance, by means of law-keeping? I don't know that I can be absolutely decisive, but I can be decisive about this. The whole point of the section is that Abraham was not justified by his works, And this is immediately applicable because it continues in the heart of the rebellious sinner, this thinking that my background or my baptism or my church attendance or my being good to my neighbor will somehow gain for me merit before God. This is how we think. We don't think that we are sinners. But the scriptures persist in telling us that we are sinners and sinners of such a sort That we can never be accepted by anything that we do, any practice of ours, any religious observance of ours. And that's why he goes on in verse 2 to say, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Was justification by works of the law? If so, Abraham could boast. There was something about which he could boast. Now, notice how in verse 2 Paul adds that's not possible before God, because this is purely a hypothetical argument for the sake of presenting the idea that salvation cannot be by works. So what does Paul do? He simply appeals to the scriptures. The purpose is to show that Paul clearly rejects the concept of human merit. And so he goes on in verse 3, and he adds, "...for what does the scripture say?" Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He points to Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There you have it. For Paul, by the way, what the Scripture says is what God says. There's a great article by B.B. Warfield that some of you should read called, It Says, Scripture Says, God Says. He identifies the words of Scripture with the very words of God. He does that here. And his point is that Abraham believed God, trusted and relied upon him alone. And the whole point is that he did so without works of his own. It is against works righteousness. Now Jesus, of course, is saying the same thing to us in Luke 18. In that very familiar passage, you might want to turn there, in which he speaks of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just notice the first few verses in which he speaks of the Pharisee. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, I believe the Greek text has the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified. Do you see the word? And did you see how in the beginning of verse 9, it speaks of how he was attempting to establish his own righteousness. So this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the Lord Jesus is teaching that it was typical of the Pharisees to attempt to establish their own righteousness and justification by their own works. Parenthetical comment, no charge for this whatsoever. But uh, you know there's out there the new perspective on Paul, the teaching of N.T. Wright and so forth uh, about uh, about the Pharisees and justification. We've got it all wrong. The Reformation had it all wrong, we are told, by Mr. Wright. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees did not believe in justification by works. They actually believed in salvation by grace. So what do you find in Luke 18? What is there? You have the Pharisee attempting to establish his own righteousness. I think Jesus knows better than Mr. Wright. So that's what we are taught here. Even belief does not save us. Important as it is, because faith is not a work, but faith is the gift of God. So what does he mean when he uses Genesis 15? He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He meant that Abraham, believing the promise of the Christ who was to come, did he understand it all? No. Did he perceive precisely what it all meant? No. No. But in relying upon the promise, Abraham was truly trusting in Christ. He believed God, trusted, relied upon the promise. And the whole point is that the promise ultimately is Christ himself. In trusting the promise, Abraham flew to Jesus Christ, flew from his sin, and trusted in the Redeemer to come. And that's why Jesus says in John 8, 56, that your father Abraham rejoiced to see Abraham's day and was glad. The Jew, uh, this proto-lawkeeper, as the Jews would call Abraham, was justified by faith. Christ, therefore, no works. Christ, therefore, no merit. Christ, therefore, no boasting. Christ alone is the object of faith. Christ exclusive of all others. Do you understand that? That exclusive of all other hope, all other saviors, all others that would intrude, Christ alone is the Redeemer. And now you find this word impute that is used here in Genesis 15, 6. You find it in verse 3 of Romans 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. Now the word means counted or reckoned or imputed. It's one of the most important words in our theology. Imputed Righteousness. You impute something to one's character. It does not alter them, it does not change them, it is a declaration concerning them. So here, justification does not make us morally righteous, it declares the believer to be judicially right, accepted by God. He puts the righteousness of Christ to our account. And when he speaks of faith in Christ here in this way, Abraham believed God and it was crowned, uh, counted to him as righteousness, of course, he's talking about Christ as the object of his faith. Graciously reckoned, God's free gift. And again, it is by faith as defined for us in Romans 10.10, 10, the gospel believed unto righteousness. In Philippians 3.9, Paul speaks of it this way, the righteousness of God by faith. It is the righteous act of the last Adam of which we read in Romans 5 that is imputed to our account. And so Paul moves on to an everyday example in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Paul is simply saying, if I contract to do a job and I do it and my employer pays me, he is simply giving me my due. He is paying me what is owed me. It is a debt, not grace. The employer would be wrong not to pay. The worker is concerned with compensation. But that's not how it is with justification. So he puts the matter positively in verse 5 by saying, and to the one who does not does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Who can overestimate the importance of this verse? I wonder if you even noticed. Did you? Look at it again. To the one who does not work, okay, you do nothing to earn it, you do nothing to deserve it, but trusts, it's simple faith, him who accepts, justifies, declares righteous, the what? The, the ungodly. Does that not move your soul? He he didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to redeem people that didn't need redeeming. And Jesus doesn't justify people who are godly. He justifies ungodly, ill deserving, hell deserving. Sinners like me. Remember what he said in chapter 3, verse 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under the power of sin. Then he describes the human heart and the depravity of the human heart. And in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in verse 23 of Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why the bad news is necessary if we're going to understand the good news. That I'm really an ungodly person. I'm a depraved sinner. That I have no good thing to offer to God. That I can perform no work that will even contribute to my justification or acceptance. That in the righteous robe that I need before God in order to stand before Him accepted, there is not one stitch that comes from any labor of my hands. But it all comes from Christ and Christ alone. God's justification is not only upon the unrighteous, but upon the ungodly. Those of us who hate God, who live against God, who are ungodly. All of this highlighting the glory of grace. And so what does this verse tell us? that it is God who justifies, that it is His act, that He justifies the ungodly. It is an act of declaration toward the ungodly. Justification does not change us morally. Don't confuse justification and sanctification. We are guilty, helpless, condemned by the law, and God declares those sorts of people to be righteous, Put it another way, justification is forensic, it's legal. Righteousness is declared ours, put to our account in God's court of law. And the righteousness of Christ is actually mine by faith. Is it yours by faith? Have you received Christ? And in receiving Christ, have you received this righteousness that you need in order to be accepted by God? So that's Abraham. Abraham. And now, since the Jews boast in Abraham but also in David, the Apostle Paul turns the pages of the Old Testament and he says, all right, let's move to about 1000 B.C. and let's look at David, our father. And he has an important reference to David in verse 6. He says, just as David also repeats of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, that's that word, reckon, imputes righteousness, apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the appeal to David is particularly important. Uh, Paul is dealing with justification by faith apart from works in opposition to works. David makes the jubilant pronouncement that the person is blessed whose iniquities are forgiven and to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Not blessed is the man who has good works laid to his account, but blessed is the man whose sins are not laid to his account. And David's own life then depended upon forgiveness of sin was not determined by a concept of good works but by the divine favor. David, the adulterer, was accepted by the righteousness of Christ, my friend, not by anything that he did. Once again, David's view of the matter has nothing to do with securing acceptance by works of merit. Paul is relentless here. He is going after this idea of works righteousness, going after this idea of of personal merit, And he says he will not impute sin to those whom he saves. He will not keep an account of sin in his book. He forgives our sins and he covers them over. And you see how Paul interprets this in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, not just negative but positive, doesn't only cover our sin, not only forgives our sin, But David interprets this psalm as counting righteousness. Not simply not imputing, but imputing. Not imputing sin, but counting, imputing, reckoning, righteousness. He says that's what David meant in the 32nd psalm. That's his point. It's synonymous with justify. David is teaching the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith... In Psalm 32, just as with Abraham in Genesis 15:6, count righteous counts as righteous means justify. So David uses shorthand, Paul expounds it into some longhand. God has forgiven, blotted out, will never charge it to me. But that is not the complete story. It is not simply that he pardons, but he also imputes, he credits a perfect righteousness. To my account. Believer, it is not only true when you come to faith in Christ that you're pardoned. That is gloriously true. But not only are you pardoned, but the perfect record of Christ is imputed, counted, reckoned to your account. A perfect righteousness before a holy God no one has ever been accepted by God in any other way. That's what he's teaching here. All the way through the history of the Old Testament. Let's take two examples. says Paul, Abraham, if any Jew would consider someone justified by works, it would be Abraham. No, no, he was not justified by what he did. He was justified by grace through faith and the promise of Christ to come. How about David? Surely David was justified by works, wasn't he? No, 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 David was not justified by works, but he was justified by grace through faith in Christ who was to come. The point of David, as cited by Paul, is acceptance with God is not a human work. But it all comes down to this whole whole issue of imputed righteousness. A great illustration of this is found in Leviticus 16. Uh, You might want to turn there just to remember that on the Day of Atonement, we have this laying on of the hands on the head of the goat. And so in Leviticus 16:21 and 22 we read, Leviticus 16:21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. That's imputation. It was not a transfusion of sin into the goat. Uh, Here is the high priest laying his hand upon the goat, confessing sins over this scapegoat, imputing, reckoning, counting the sins of the people on to the goat who was sent out into the wilderness, pointing to the fact as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Someone came to me for counsel and they just could not seem to understand. Believer, I think. Just could not seem to understand this horrible sin in which they were involved has been forgiven by God. I led this fellow out. I said, look up here. Look, look, look. You know what the Bible says? As far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Can you show me how far that is? He looked at the sky and said, no. No. I can't tell you. That's what the Bible says. As Owen says, show me the sinner that can stretch his sins to the infinity of God's grace. That's the point here. That's the idea of imputed righteousness. It's what we read in that beautiful passage in Isaiah 53. Do you remember this morning? Do you see how upset I would be that a pastor... Would over the deathbed of a believer, say, oh, Isaiah 53, it's not really about Christ. It wasn't even written by Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is all about Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's imputation. That's reckoning to the account of Christ. All, not some all of the iniquity of all of the people of God through all of the centuries. Every sin, all of your guilt, was laid on, reckoned to, imputed to Jesus Christ. My sin reckoned to Him. His perfect record, righteousness, reckoned to me which is what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5:21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God it's imputed righteousness that he means in 2 Corinthians 5:21 my sin reckoned to Jesus his righteousness reckoned to me that's Paul's point here it's the same idea so are you clear on this do you understand this? Let me attempt to make it clearer. Let's follow Paul's example by a reminder of the example that we find in Zechariah chapter 3. I won't re-preach the sermon to you, though I'd love to. But there in Zechariah 3, you have Joshua, who at the time of the rebuilding of the temple was the high priest of the people of God. He stands in the presence of God, Zolim. He is covered In filth. The word sometimes can mean dung. He is filthy from head to toe. There he stands in the presence of a holy God. Now remember, the high priest represents the people of God. So the people of God are represented as standing before a holy God completely covered in filth, in iniquity, in sin, in disobedience, in rebellion. That was us before knowing Jesus. But the Lord rebuked the devil. The Lord himself removed from Joshua the high priest his filthy garments, put upon him from head to toe a clean white garment representing the forgiveness, the pardon of sin, the removal of guilt, The imputation, the counting, the reckoning of righteousness received by faith. Now that's you, if you're a believer in Christ. It really is true. You say, I don't feel that way. Man, I... I I'm so rebellious. I'm not up 10 minutes in the morning before I've had a filthy thought. I'm not up 10 minutes before I've said something I shouldn't have said. I'm such a sinner within my heart. Yes, you are. That was Luther's point, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and a sinner. Morally, we're still sinners. Morally, we're growing. Morally, progressively, the Spirit of God is sanctifying us. The day will come in glory when our hearts will be completely free from that moral iniquity. But let me tell you, in terms of your acceptance with God, the removal of your guilt, your reception before His throne, you are as righteous as God's own Son. You are justified by grace through faith. So the Christian is one who does not work to be accepted by God. Faith means we no longer look to self. We offer nothing. We do nothing to be accepted. Yes, it is true. I ought to be in worship. I ought to love my neighbor. I ought to read Scripture more faithfully. But never confuse these things with acceptance before God. Those things never contribute to your acceptance before God. What will you plead before the judgments of God that you may be absolved? You stand before God. He's absolutely holy. There you are on the day of judgment. Don't allow your minds as you think about that to be diverted from Christ to yourselves. I'm amazed at how men can depart from Paul's plain meaning here. Not your works, not even your works done in Christ justify you. I sometimes ask in our Presbytery Examinations Committee and even on the floor of Presbytery a question something like this. You stand before Christ on the day of judgment and you are going to give an account Are you justified in any way by works? Do your works contribute at all? Do your Holy Spirit-inspired works contribute anything? The works that have been produced within you by the Spirit of God, do do they contribute to your acceptance with God? I've actually had some men in committee scratch their heads a little, believe it or not. But let me tell you, as far as my vote is concerned, any young man that would want to preach to the people of God that Holy Spirit-produced works contribute to justification has no business in a pulpit. No work whatsoever contributes to your justification before the throne of God above That's what makes the gospel good news because you can't do it and even your holy things need washing and cleansing, don't they? The holiest thing you do is still tainted by sin. Even your holy things need cleansing. So works are important in the Christian life. But they are never the ground, never the basis, never the foundation of our relationship with God. It wasn't for Abraham, it wasn't for David, it wasn't for Paul, and it's not for you. Because Paul's entire point here is that there is no other way of acceptance with God. And this will always offend moralists. It will always offend the man, offend the man outside of Christ. You've heard me mention the name of William Romaine from time to time. 18th-century uh, Anglican minister, powerful preacher of the gospel. Actually, he was a self-righteous bigot whom God humbled, showed him his sin, saved him by grace, and then he became a preacher of justifying righteousness. Powerful preacher. This is around the time of George Whitfield in America, Jonathan Edwards. Romaine preached before the University of Oxford a series of sermons entitled, The Lord Our Righteousness. And in one sermon he said this, Whoever amongst us seeks justification through Christ's righteousness cannot be offended at what I have said. And I would offend those... I would offend those who seek for justification without Christ's righteousness. I would gladly stir them up and provoke them to examine their principles and to try whether they can trust their eternity upon them. If they trust to their own righteousness, they are lost forever. There is no righteousness but Christ's, wherein sinners can appear without spot of sin at the bar of justice." So William Romaine preached that before the university professors and students at Oxford. Romaine did provoke them, causing such offense that he was not allowed to preach at Oxford any longer. Now note this. What I'm preaching tonight is found in every reformational confession of faith, including the 39 articles of the Church of England to which every Church of England, every Anglican minister subscribes. Romaine subscribed to it. All of those ministers sitting there who heard Romaine preach subscribed to the 39 articles that taught justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone and they were mortally offended. The articles of, those, of that church, which still stand, by the way, are right out of the Protestant Reformation, right out of the Bible. So do you see how a church can have a confession and pay lip service to it? And that is why we oppose so strongly the Roman Catholic view of justification that confuses it with sanctification and makes it a process and includes human merit in the process. So that the Council of Trent, the Roman Roman Catholic Council of Trent makes it plain that righteousness increases in the justified, totally missing Paul's point that justification is not a process, it's an act, and that the total, complete Perfect righteousness record of Christ is once for all imputed to the believer. And get this. Because justification... Now, get this. Because justification is what you will hear on the last day when you stand before God and He says not guilty, perfectly righteous. Because it is that verdict pressed back into time upon everyone who now believes in Jesus. Because it is eschatological, it lasts. Because it is eschatological, it cannot be lost. You cannot be justified one day and unjustify the next. God who saves has promised to save and keep His people. So we've sung this great hymn tonight. Listen to the words, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, Midst flaming worlds and these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. How can a sinner stand on the day of judgment? Bold shall I stand on thy thy great day for who ought to my charge shall lay fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Well, will we have any merit of our own? No, 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 no. Only the claim that we have by faith upon the righteousness of another, Jesus, so that when from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies... Even then this shall be all my plea, Jesus hath lived, hath died for me.